Welcome to Squawk Season 2. This is the first show in spring 2023. Well, we call it spring because we're attached to the college, of course, and it's the spring semester, even if spring hasn't happened yet. We're going to change some things up this semester. If you've listened to any of our episodes from last semester, there should be 17 of them, I believe. What we would do is we would roll a die and we'd pick from one of the many questions that our students had asked us. We're going to bring that back at certain times, perhaps throughout this particular season. However, because we know that you all have questions about particular forms of belief, Brian and I collaborated and Brian came up with a really great idea. He says, why don't we talk about some things that people have questions about already, even if they haven't asked them. And one of those big areas is the area of cults. Mm -hmm. And so this season, we're going to be talking about cults in three ways. One, what's their, what are some little known facts about them? Then Brian's going to give some history on where do they come from? You mm-hmm. know, what do they believe? Who's, who's their leader? All that stuff. And then we're going to talk about, well, how do we reach them? Mm-hmm. So this is going to give you some really great information. It's also going to give you some tools. And we know it's an area that's always of great interest. So we're looking forward to it. The show format's going to be split up. And we're going to save that area that we just talked about for the last 20 minutes. And then the first five minutes, which I'm taking my five right now, <laughs> are, you know, it, approximately five. It's, as you know, we're not exactly completely formal here. But um, that first five minutes, we're going to generally be talking about what's happening in the classes that Brian and I are teaching, mm-hmm. what's happening at the college, so that you can be connected more to the life of Calvary College, in addition to the things that we're discussing. So still feel free to send us questions because we, if especially if they have to do with cults and things, which is sort of the theme for the semester. But that being said, there's no die roll this time. We're going to jump into this new format. And so Brian, if you want to yeah. Well, well Luke, I'm excited about this new semester and, and the, a lot of the topics we're going to tackle. It's, it's going to be fun. But uh, concerning the college, Calvary College, we, I began my class last night. It, it went very well. Excellent. And for those who have never taken a class of mine, it's usually pretty animated. We do a lot of discussion and, you know, I don't have the overheads. Pastor Nelson has the the overheads and, and such, right. but, but I do it old school. I, I have handouts and write on the board and we, we jumped in to the subject of the reformation, looking at the factors that um, led up to the reformation. Mm. We looked at environmental factors. We looked at sociological factors. And then of course we looked at individuals who were important leading up to the reformation. Exactly. And then starting next week, We'll jump into, uh, again, looking at some of those factors, uh, maybe from a more theological standpoint, and then we're going to get into Luther. And so it's a really exciting time. And then after I do my lecture, we actually pick up an original source book and we read it. So I, I lecture for about an hour and a half, and then then we read for about a half hour. And we mm. discuss it like like an expository teaching almost where where we're reading the text and then I'll stop and we'll discuss it and and because what I find is by using original sources you get a bird's eye view or an intimate view right. of of what was going on during uh, that time and what they were believing and and so on and so forth. Uh, so this year we start off with Thomas Akempis's uh, Imitation of Christ. And we jumped into it last night, so it was it was a great class and um, a full class, 
all all the chairs are taken up and it's <laughs> it's, great. it's fun. It's great. How about yours? I actually began this Friday and I'm teaching a class that I just developed, personal evangelism. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that because one of the things that Calvary does really well is what they call mass evangelism. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the Billy Graham model where you have casting a large net. We have these big community events that they come in, they come to campus, Pastor Skip or another pastor will be preaching a gospel message, and we see big responses from that, and they come into the life of the church as new converts, as people who need to be discipled. We do that really well. And Pastor Skip in particular has shared many anecdotes of him personally witnessing to people, winning them to the Lord. And so at this particular juncture, I've been approached by a number of people prior to this class who were saying, you know, I really wish, and this was happening in my connect group, it's happening in various places where I'm at. I really wish I had more experience taking someone from A to Z Mm -hmm. on how to accept Christ. And I thought, you know, I used to teach courses like that um, to my youth when I was a youth pastor. A long time ago, I took them through the Romans Road, memorized it. We went out, we'd go out to community outreach events, and it was such a formative event for them. So this class has been built to do that. It's built to, number one, really stoke the, the devotional fires of your heart to think about your individual part of the mission of Christ in building the kingdom and how spiritually formative that is for you. And it, in my opinion, Brian, it, it, it dominoes into all these different parts where oftentimes the lack of apologetic prowess that you see in Christianity in general is because mm-hmm. we're not being consistently confronted by the thoughts of the lost because we're not going to them face-to-face and inviting them. And trust me, a lost person will definitely speak their mind 90% of the time or more about how they feel about Christianity or what their objections are. No one's really being exposed to that, except there may be books here and there, mm-hmm. but it's not the same when you're face-to-face. And it's sort of the way that Christ designed it. He said that you really won't mature until you have grown up and you have spoken the truth in love. That's one of the elements. So speaking the truth in love, that ye may grow up into him in all things. So there's something about being used by God that's spiritually formative. And I want these folks who, have, who are coming into the class to to really experience that mm-hmm. and I hope that they'll catch fire, that they'll be passionate about the gospel, they'll be aware of the lost, and they'll be witnesses, mm-hmm. and then they'll be able to spread that out and be able to take what they're learning in the class and pass it on to others in their connect groups and their friends and family. Yeah, so exciting. And it's going to be a great semester at Calvary College. And of course, you could go online and learn more about the college and what we're doing and the classes that are available each semester. But but Luke, we're transitioning now yes. to this new format, which you eloquently um, gave us at the beginning, three parts. You're going to give our listeners basically some tidbits, some some nuggets about the group we're talking about. And today we're talking about Jehovah Witnesses. Yes. And so you're going to give us some tidbits of that. And then, as you said, I'm going to give a little bit of history because, you know, we hear the name Jehovah Witness, but we usually don't know who these people are and where they came from and who is the founder and so on and so forth. So that's going to be my job. And then the third part, as you pointed out, we're going to share some stories of, of how maybe we've shared with Jehovah witnesses, um, biblical truth. So anyway, that's our format for the, the remainder of our 20 minutes together. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Luke. All right. So, What I want to do here just in these few minutes to introduce, because I want to leave Brian plenty of time to dig into the history, because it takes longer to tell a history than it does to talk about tidbits, which is really the point, because 
you remember our previous format, Brian was the one who gave the background for everything that we talked about and did such an excellent job doing that. So this is going to be his strong point in these next episodes that we have as well. So a couple of things about the Jehovah's Witnesses. You may not have known that they've been around since the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And they were originally known by a number of different names. I'm not going to give away all of them because Brian may be talking about that. We haven't shared notes with each other yet. So, But um, the fellow who founded them, and I'll leave that to Brian as well, he was a very confused gentleman Mm -hmm. for a long time. And so he experimented, dabbled in a lot of things and had a lot of strange ideas. But interestingly enough, one of the things that spawned this particular group to be called the Jehovah's Witnesses, even though it started in the 19th century, didn't happen until the 20th century. They were they were founded by him quite some time before under a different name. Hmm. Now, after a bunch of splits and stuff, they began to coalesce as Jehovah's Witnesses specifically around the founder. And this is when some of the really strange doctrines started being published Interestingly enough, the Watchtower does not publish his writings and haven't since 1927. Mm -hmm. So that should tell you something. But one of their defining doctrines is the doctrine of the 144,000. And I've always found this to be very interesting. Back in the early part, um, and you may not have known this about them, that when they first started, they didn't have 144,000 members. But they reached that amount, I think, in 1935. And their teaching, which is rather silly is that the Lord's been gathering these witnesses from 8033 all the way until 1935. It took him that long to get 144,000 together, and they all just happened to be living at the time. <laughs> but apparently there's now only 9,000 living hundred of the original 144,000, as they put it. And they're not allowed to take communion unless they're a member of that group. So there's only 9,000 people left in the millions of people that follow JWs that are allowed to take communion. And so often the church doesn't have communion because there's not one of those members who have to be quite old at this point to have been, quote, converted sometime between 1900 or 1909 and 1935, still be living and still being able to be mobile and walk around. So it's a big hindrance to their taking of communion. But the second part of that is this. What did they do with that doctrine of 144,000 once they reached that level? Because their idea was this is all that there's ever going to be of the body of Christ. Well, now they teach that you can still be a part of the JWs, but you can't be a part of the 144,000. And so therefore, you're not part of the body of Christ and you're not going to go to heaven, which is a really strange doctrine. It makes you wonder how many people do they actually tell this to. One of the other things, they reject the doctrine of hell, they reject the Trinity, and they reject the immortality of the soul. They think that these are all constructs of what they call platonic philosophy. And they've accused the church of being corrupted by platonic thought. And so they've chosen their own way. And unfortunately in doing that, they've gone back to many of the heretical writers that were rejected very early on. And this is where a lot of their doctrine comes from. So those are my tidbits for now. There's many more. Interesting. Yep. Let's hear what you got. And one of the things, Luke, as you and I discussed when we were planning these, these um, programs is that so much can be said about every group we're going to be discussing. Yes. We can literally spend a week, two weeks, unpacking the the groups we're going to be discussing. We don't have a week or two weeks for each one. <laughs> right. So so we're 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 giving tidbits. And 
what our hope would be is if someone really wants to reach out and and um, figure out how to learn more about the groups we're talking about and how to reach out to to win them to Christ would be to get uh, uh, some of the resources. So for Jehovah Witnesses, you know, Ron Rhodes has right. a great um, book about it. Uh, the, the Classic Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin has a, yes. a section on that. Norman Geisler has material. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of material out there that we would encourage our listeners to pick up and Rose Publications. And one more, and you actually had a copy of this in your office that I mentioned, The Handbook of Today's Religion, which right. is McDowell and I forget what the other gentleman's was, co-authored. It was it Don Stewart or it may have been Stewart. Yeah. yeah. So so it's it's there are a lot of things. So don't think we're gonna be exhaustive here. We're we're just giving a big overview and hopefully spark enough interest that someone could say, Hey, I have a, a neighbor three doors down that brings mm. this up. How can I respond? Well, we're going to give you a little bit, but you, 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 hopefully you could do some more research. Excellent. So when it comes to the founder of the Jehovah witness, uh, Luke was kind enough to just pass it along to me. His name is Charles Russell. He was born in 1852. He grew up in the traditional Christian household um, I think they were Presbyterian, and then later on they they started to attend a Congregationalist church. Charles Russell was born in Pennsylvania. Well, as you also alluded to, Luke, in his later teenage years, into his eighteen to twenty years, he 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 started to get confusing ideas, and he started to try to grapple with what it was yeah. a Christian believes, and and so on and so forth. So he reached out to some Adventist. Yeah. Um, uh, teachers. And, and we know Adventist teachers, they later turned into the Seventh-day Adventists, which in themselves have some um, odd doctrines and understandings of Scripture. But he, he reached out to the Adventist teacher, Jonas Wendell, and he felt some of Jonas's answers were adequate to help him answer questions that he, Charles Russell, had, but didn't go far enough. So... Charles Russell took it upon himself to start studying the scripture and really define what it is that a pure understanding of, of the Bible is. Now, let me preface this. He's untrained, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, he's never been to a seminary or he doesn't know the, the languages. He, he, you know, so he's untrained. He's still very young. And there was really no clear discipleship um, other right. than him picking and choosing, but all of a sudden, like so many founders of wayward Christian movements, aka cults, they all of a sudden said, I'm going to go lock myself in a door and I'm going to wait to figure out the truth myself. Well, that's kind of what he does. He, he starts to study and he comes up with some of these ideas that you're going to get to in a little bit, um, Luke. And what he did is he forms a, a, a quote-unquote Bible study. He forms a group of people where he could start to propagate and tell people what it is he's discovering in, in the, um, the Bible. And generally, during this phase of his life, he's influenced by three major groups of people. The first are what we call restorationists. And restorationists, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of people used it for you know ill purposes. But they said, I'm going to go back to the early church and figure out what it is they believe. I'm going to restore the early church 
because we don't care about 2,000 years of history. We're just going to go back to the early church. So he was influenced by restorationists. And, you know, so were Disciples of Christ and Church of Christ and so on and so forth. But that's another program. Then he was influenced by dispensationalists. And, of course, that is, you know, an imminent return of Jesus Christ, which, um, again, is not necessarily a, a bad thing, but how Charles Russell took it, twisted it, turned into be a bad thing. But then the third group that he was really influenced by was Christian Zionism. Mm. So in this phase of his life, he's he's starting to read up or become familiar with restorationists, dispensationalists, and Christian Zionism. So he takes these along with his own personal interpretations. Again, he's not trained. All of his personal, and he basically puts them in a blender. He mixes them up, and he starts coming up with his own understanding, his own doctrines, and his own you know, en- enlightened responses to this. So what he did is in roughly around 1879, he started a publication. And that publication was called Zion's Watchtower and the Herald of Christ's mm. Presence. So what he did is he used media to propagate his ideas. He did it through magazines. And as you, most of our listeners know, or you know, Luke, a lot of times they used to come to your door and they would hand you literature. So that that really goes back to its early foundation. And then what he decided to do is he was getting more and more people interested in responding to what he was saying. And I don't think a lot of people truly understood the doctrine or what he clearly was saying, but he was obviously an enthusiastic man. He was a charismatic person, and and you know he would he would promote his his ideas. So in 1881, he co-founded the Zion's Watchtower Track Society with a fellow by the name of William Henry Conley, and they started to promote and publish Charles Russell's ideas. Well, then there was a falling out. Um, as so many times there are in these wayward Christian movements, Henry Conley, uh, you know, resigns and then, you know, basically leaves it to Charles Russell to lead it. So he began in this next phase a, a strong writing career, if you will. He figured that, well, tracks are not going to do it. People really want the meat and potatoes. You know, they, they, they really want to know if there's any legs behind what I'm, I'm saying. So from 1886 to 1904, he really started to publish his commentaries, if you will, his Bible studies on the Bible, which were called the Millennial Dawn and later renamed Studies in the Scriptures. And he printed lots of copies of these. And and, and so what it did is, again, using mass media, it helped promote Charles Russell's vision of of what he thought he was hearing from God. Just just a note on that when you said many, I looked at some figures. 20 million have probably And this is in this was during his lifetime. Yeah. So he would have become there's another anecdote I want to share it later, but that yeah. that's a massive amount you think about late 19th century. That is a massive amount. Right. Yeah. He he was let's just say he he didn't lack passion. He was passionate for his wayward ideas, his his false teachings. He was he was passionate for it. So if you give him any credit, you have to say that, you know, though he was completely um wrong in his interpretation of of particular parts of scripture, 
you at least have to say, at least he was passionate about what, you know, <laughs> which you get with a lot of uh, charismatic cult leaders anyways. So what he does is he moves the Watchtower Society, which is now it's what it was called, to New York. And then he's elected as the pastor, the overseer of this new Watchtower Society. Hmm. And then they later were formed into the Jehovah Witness. And he dies in 1916 after a speaking engagement. So what happens, like so many times after these, there was a leadership dispute after his death. There were several breakaway groups. Um, a fellow by the name of Joseph Franklin Rutherford uh, re uh, retained control over the Watchtower Society. And he really became, if you will, the figurehead of the Jehovah Witness movement. He, he you know, implemented some doctrinal and organizational changes. And you pointed out one, they, they kind of, downplayed some of Charles Russell's ideas because they thought, okay, so then they, they refined <laughs> it a little bit. And then they took on the official name Jehovah Witness, you know, by, under the leadership of Joseph Franklin Rutherford. And another notable leader in this early movement post Charles Russell was Nathan Knorr, K-N-O-R-R. And so these guys really, you could say, were attributed to helping propagate or push or move along this idea of the Jehovah Witness. And we could say that it is probably one of the top three cults in the world, meaning they still there's still a lot of passionate people. There's still a lot of confused people who have bought in hook, line, and sinker into the wayward views of Charles Russell. But that is a little bit a snippet of the, the overview of the history of Jehovah Witness, founded by Charles Russell, but really propagated and promoted post his death by Joseph Franklin Rutherford and then later Nathan Knorr. And so these are the guys that really helped promote and solidify Jehovah Witness um, you know, doctrine and teaching. Well, that is excellent, Brian. I love that. As as you know, I'm a I try to be a history buff anyway. I'm trying to pursue that in terms of academia. So I love it when there's a good, solid history that's given. There's one other part I wanted to mention that I find interesting in many cult settings. And then we're going to jump right into the tenets. In that part where he was, you mentioned, you alluded to this, but I know you didn't have time to unpack this as we do with so many other things. He was the owner of clothing stores. Russell was. Mm -hmm. And during his fallout, when he brought somebody on board, because of this teaching of the rapture and the way that he misunderstood it, he thought he only had two years left. Right. This is like in 1868, I think. And he thought that Christ was going to return. And I understand how motivating that can be, but he sold all of his furniture stores. And apparently that made him a very wealthy man. Mm -hmm. He may have already been wealthy just from his book sales and things later on, but that netted him what would be today's cost of over $7 million. $300,000 back then, $7 million. And so the reason I mention it is because it seems to be that this particular wealth that he accumulated in the sale of these things, more than anything else, allowed him to survive long enough to begin the propagation. When he began mm -hmm. the circulation of that magazine, they commented on this, that it had a higher circulation in the North American continent, you know, United States and Canada, than all other writings of all priests and pastors combined. Mm -hmm. At the time. So, and the cost for that was uh, 
to fund that initial yeah, circulation his, was over a million yeah, point and, five. And he was a wealthy man. And and yeah. again, as I point out, his passion, whether we like his doctrine or not, and, and of course we don't, Luke, you Correct. and I, what we can say is, okay, he was passionate. He And, and he, he was a businessman who, who knew how to get things out there. And so he used media yeah. to, to put into his passion. Um, obviously think, has ruined a lot of people's lives. Yeah. If he had not been successful in business, which he arguably was using his advertising specialization mm -hmm. to do that, I don't know if he would have either accumulated the wealth or had the knowledge to promote it the way that he did. Mm -hmm. He may not have been successful if it hadn't been for that particular mm -hmm. element. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I just bring that up yes. for, for that Good. purpose because I found it interesting. So tenants, what is it that they actually believe that just differentiates them so much beyond what we've looked at historically? And I'm just going to give you some basic things. A cult, as far as we understand, some have described it very generally, but I think we at least need to mention that for the theme of the show. And I may mention it a couple of other times. And I'm speaking quickly now because we don't have a lot of time, so I hope it doesn't turn into one long sound for you. But the idea of a cult is someone who has deviated from Christian doctrine in one of its fundamental areas, as it's often described. I'm going to go a little bit farther to be more specific, because I'm going to say that a cult is a group or a religion that, while still claiming to be Christians, have deviated in from the scriptural articulation of either the person, the work, or the existence of one of the members of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Because that's really, I mean, that's that from which all accurate Christian doctrine flows. And that can take a lot of forms, but all of them are extremely detrimental. When you have significant deviation on those elements, there's things we would even consider intramural arguments between different denominations that we consider to contain Christian members if they follow the doctrine, to also be cultic in their origins, but have nonetheless infiltrated the house. But we're not going to focus on that this season. We're talking about folks that specifically are sort of what we consider outside the camp, that if they follow those particular things, they would not be considered Christian regardless of what mm -hmm. they call themselves. Uh, it is of interest that Jehovah's Witnesses and some other cults we're going to get to next week didn't even want to be called Christians for some time. Mm -hmm. And it's only been recent that they realized that they could get a lot closer to recruit people if they changed their nomenclature a little bit. But one of their major things is Jehovah's Witnesses in their current articulation, the way that they say things has become very similar to how Christians say things. They're not so much shockingly different, but something to understand that they believe underneath. They'll say that Jesus is the Christ, but they do not believe that he was the Christ at birth, but that, rather that he became Christ at the point of his baptism, which means this is not the eternal sonship. This is not Christ being God. This is Christ becoming the anointed one of God at his baptism. And it's still a question as to whether or not they consider that to be deity. So simply because they're using the word Christ doesn't mean that they mean what we mean when mm -hmm. we say it. Major doctrinal derivation, um, deviation, excuse me. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they won't say that he is God the Son. They reject the Trinity as Platonic philosophy, among other things, as we talked about before. So they'll say that all day long. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and they're using this because of what First John says. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, if any spirit that confesses that Jesus came in the flesh, etc., and that Jesus is the Son of God, that they're acceptable. Well, they mean something different. They don't believe that he is actually deity. They believe that Jesus died for man's sins, but his blood only covers the sins of people who have proven themselves worthy through door-to-door -door outreach. 
That's a pretty big thing to know. And it tells you where a lot of their passion comes from. It's fear-based. And that's mm -hmm. something from which they And works-based. Fear yes. and works-based. Yeah, you've got to work your way to earn that salvation. Exactly right. And the, so we would definitely disagree with that. They say that Jesus was resurrected, but they actually teach, and this is one of the weird ones, but hold on to your seatbelts here. Jesus is Michael the archangel. So that's who he was originally. And when he was resurrected, that's who he was resurrected as. So they don't have a problem with the idea that whatever Jesus was became flesh and he became that at his baptism. And then when he was resurrected, he was restored to what he originally was, but that's still not God. That's Michael, the archangel. But if you don't dig into that, you're going to hear something that sounds very similar to what you would say, but nothing like what you mean. We do not believe that Jesus is an angelic being. He is God himself. And then lastly, uh, scripture speaks of Christ's second coming. Now they think that that already happened. Not only was Russell confused about that, like we talked about in the late 18, 1800s, but the invisible return that he thought was going to happen around 1870, they now sort of stick a pin in the calendar and say, this happened through the invisible presence of Christ having already returned in 1914. Probably one of the reasons why Russell wrote what he wrote about the dawn of the millennium. Mm -hmm. This is post-millennial understanding that we're bringing in the kingdom, right? So there's a whole lot of things to unpack there. We don't have time to do it, but these are their basic tenets yeah. and big places where these cannot be reconciled yeah. with Scripture. So, so they were wayward biblically. They had a misunderstanding of, of, of the Bible. And later, as you and I both know, translated their own Bible. Yes. They have their own version of the Bible, the New World Translation. So they were off biblically. They were off theologically. He, he came to wrong conclusions uh, theologically. And then you could even say sociologically, yeah. you know, they, 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 you know, they were very cloistered, a very, you know, internal, not a lot of interaction with other Christians or people. So those are sheer fire ways to say that they're a cult. When, when someone is, you know, the biblically off, theologically off and sociologically, you know, distant and tries to stay away from other people other than them pushing their, their goods. It's, it, it, you know, there's, there's some big question marks. So the question is, and our next point is how do we reach them? And again, I would refer to some of those resources I said at the beginning for more information, but let me, let me tell you generally what I do. And we've had many Jehovah witnesses throughout the years come to my door and I've had discussions with them. And I, rather than jumping into scripture, because they'll open up their New World Translation and go, no, that's not what it says. And again, they're, they're, they've never been trained in Greek and anything else of that nature. They're just trained to say that our Bible's right and your Bible's wrong. So before I do that, I, I do something very general. And, and, and it may be a little sneaky of me, but <laughs> I, I go, well, okay, this is interesting. I'm glad you're here. You know, it's nice to meet you. And, and I said, so... And I, I sort of play dumb sometimes. I don't, you know, tell them who I am. But I go, well, it seems to me that if Charles Russell was really hearing from God, don't you think God would have given him his real name? <laughs> he started off with, you know, their Jehovah Witnesses, or, you know, even if it was Rutherford or others who solidified that. I said, don't you think that the person that I'm claiming to represent would give me his actual real name? You know, it'd be like I'm marrying someone, and not, but I don't. Who's your wife? I don't know. I, I I only know her as this, but I don't know her real name. And and that's what usually I say. I say so. So, 
I do that just to, to, to cause, to put them a little bit off to say, yeah. so Jehovah is not the old Testament name for God. His, his name is Yahweh. Um, and then, you know, we could talk about the tetragram and all this, but I, I usually don't, I just go. So Jehovah is, is a translation of Adonai with Yahweh. So they wouldn't have to say the sacred name of Yahweh. So I said, but so you're kind of, you know, you're even your name has some issues with it. So then, then when I, 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 you know, they're a little off, you know, okay, this guy, you know, I don't know how to answer that. Then usually what I do is I would then turn to some biblical, um, you know, points with them. Uh, just in, in your, your articulation was great, but I usually have to deal with when I'm talking with them about the differences in scripture, Mm -hmm. you know, you, and and they know all of this though. So they're trained to even give responses. Well, you know, they'll say, well, the King James or whatever that was, that was, you know, um, a corrupted, you know, book and so on and so forth. And you've got to deal with that. But here's the thing for me, I think I listen to them. I try to show love. I do. And then I try to lead them to biblical truth. So I listen. So I don't just, you know, treat them like trash. I, I'll, okay, interesting. Yep. Okay. I, I, I understand. Then I, you know, all right. And I, I hope I'm exuding love. So I listen, love, and then I try to lead them. But we also have to understand you know, these, these folks are really well-trained. They're, they're yeah. trained. They've a lot of times been trained by, you know, a person who says you're going to be confronted with this and here's how you can do it. And you'll notice some of the younger people will always come with a, a, an elder, an elder kind, yeah. overseer who will <laughs> then interject. And, you know, when you get too deep with them, well, though, and then usually they don't come back to your house because right. they go, don't, this guy's going to just confuse my people. So that's, that's how I do it. I start with the name. And then I get to scripture things. But generally speaking, I I listen to what they're saying and I use that for whatever pinpoint I could respond back. I try to exude love with them, but then I need to lead them somewhere and that's lead them to the biblical Christ. So that's how Agreed. I do it. Now we've got just a couple minutes. I'm just going to share. I, I loved the similarities because I use much the same approach, only the doctrine that I go after rather than going after the name, which I love as a, as a tactic. I'm going to add that to my toolkit is the doctrine of hell mm-hmm. because I know that they reject it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the most easily recruitable points that they have. So many religions do that. I spoke to a lady recently, actually, off the corner of Golf Course and Paseo, and they'll set up little places around town where they'll send a couple of witnesses out there and they'll be giving out literature and talking and things. And I'll approach them and I'll just play dumb like the fox, or they call it, you know, I'll just let them sort of say, mm-hmm. and I get them to start articulating because if they know that you know the Bible off the front, they're going to shut you down. They're not going to spend time with you, and you'll you'll fail the opportunity to get to plant a seed. The Bible says to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You're not supposed to be openly deceptive, but it doesn't mean you have to go out there and divulge everything that you know the first time. Lead them in so that you can get an opportunity to talk to them mm-hmm. and do exactly what Brian was talking about. You listen to them. And the thing that I ask them first is I ask them whether or not the Word of God is something that they consider to be an authority. And once they have a said, well, yes, absolutely, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, then at that point, I ask them, well, what about the doctrine of hell? What does the Bible say about where people are going to go when they die? And at this point, you know, they start talking about 
staying on the earth or going to heaven or not spending eternity with God or annihilationism where the person basically dies and uh, is either burned up, but they don't believe in eternal hell. And so in those types of situations, I take them to Revelation 14, 11. This is where it talks about the lake of fire, talks about who's going to go there. And it says, the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever. It's pretty hard to get around that. And the reason I did that is not to be cruel or not to be pejorative, but specifically to reach out to them on this issue. Because the lady I was talking to that day, I, I asked them questions and get their story. You know, well, why Jehovah's Witness out of everything else? Out of all the religions you could have chosen, why this? And she said, she told me something that was so tragic. She said, I chose this religion because it was such a relief to me to realize that hell doesn't exist. And the reason she needed to know that is because some of her family had died and she didn't want to believe that that's where they went. And you'll find this to be common. This is common even in atheism. The doctrine of hell, the judgment of God is something that turns into a point of pain and people don't want to believe that it's true. And how terrible for a religion to come along and to assuage the conscience of people by telling them a lie that they do not have to, like they used to say in old time, there was a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And so I tried to plant a seed in that individual. You say, why did you do that of all things? The Bible says this, on some having compassion, making a difference, others save with fear. And it doesn't mean that you're just trying to make them afraid, but it says pulling them out of the fire and it makes a difference. You have to approach different people different ways for a hardcore cultist reopening some of those things that they're using the cultic doctrine to assuage may be the very opening that the Holy Spirit needs to be able to get in there and start using what they claim to be the Word of God to work on their heart once more, to reawaken their conscience. And so that's often the approach that I take because it's such a common discussion, can be had with many different cultic groups that deny hell, and it strikes home because it usually connects with a point of pain and lets them know, hey, you know what, maybe there is a hell, but there is a place and a way to be rescued from that. So that's my typical approach. Brian, I've definitely appreciated your contributions. We're grateful to have the show back on the episodes for spring of 2023. And as always, we invite you, if you have your own questions relating to the theme of this year or this semester, write to us at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. That's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.